0: Hi everyone, you are listening to The Accents Podcast on WUKY. I'm your host, Katerina Stoikova, and with me is poet, journalist, radio host, and photographer, Kevin Nance. Hi Kevin, how are you?
1: Hi, how are you? I'm so glad to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you on the other side of the mic, so to say, (laughs) because you have been the one to ask the questions the last few times we've met. That's right.
1: You've been on uh, my show, Kentucky Writers Roundtable, I think at least twice, if not maybe three times. And I think you're about to have a a fourth appearance very soon Mm -hmm. for, for, uh, for us to talk about your new book.
0: You are one of my favorite photographers and one of my favorite haiku poets.
1: Ah, thank you.
0: And I thought we can start the conversation with your two published books, and I've really enjoyed both of them, Even If and Midnight. Please tell us about those
1: books. Well, uh, Even If started really as a an exhibition. I did a an exhibition of photographs and haiku at the University of Kentucky Hospital Chapel Gallery. And the, there were prints on a wall and there were the haiku uh, that were printed out over a kind of a subset of the visual image next to the, the print. And um, at some point... Uh, while that was up. And it was up for over a year because COVID hit and, uh, you know, everything sort of froze. And unfortunately, not very many people saw the exhibit because of COVID. But um, they, um, the very fine people there at UK uh, Arts and Healthcare, Jason Karavi primarily, and uh, Jim Shambu, um, they decided to publish... uh, a book that would be both a uh, a catalog of the show and a, a sort of chapbook. And it ended up being a chapbook. I think it had 26 poems and 26 photographs. And they went together. Um, I did, in that case, I wrote... Most of the uh, poems were written uh, inspired by the by the visual image. And, uh, and the, the visual images all predated uh, the poems. The poems, I only started writing haiku in 2019, actually. And uh, I, I just sort of stumbled into it. Our dear friend, our mutual dear friend, Linda Bryant, had posted something. Um, she had moved to Berea not long before that and she talked about the fact that there were so many redbud trees it was it was in the springtime and uh you know red redbud trees are beautiful and and they're very striking they're the first they're usually the first flowering tree to bloom in the spring in, in Kentucky and uh, i had been to visit her and i'd seen some of those and in fact i'd photographed them and i it just there's something about spring and uh redbud trees blooming in the mountains that just... It, they, I wrote a haiku, and the haiku just sort of wrote itself. And then I just kept writing <laughs> haiku. And now I've written... I mean, it's been... That was four years ago, and uh, I think I've written well over a 1,000 haiku now. And then, I don't write one every day, but I do... I write one probably at least every other day. And some days I write more than one, so it maybe it averages out to one a day or something like that. People have said to me, and I post them on Facebook, and and um, people have said to me, "Oh, I I saw your daily haiku," and I always say, "Well, it's not always daily Cause I
0: you I make the no promises, <laughs> right?"
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to have like this, this, uh, I don't know allotment of writing a haiku every day, but it, it, it does work out to something like that. And I have, um, I, uh, after that first book came out um, a couple of years later, I had, you know, written a great many more. And uh, many of those uh, uh, haiku in the second book were written really in the depths of the COVID pandemic. And, and so they had kind of a dark quality many of them a lot of meditations on death and meditations on suffering um and and they they just kind of hung together as a sort of nocturnal book and so it became the book is called midnight and in fact the word i realized that the word midnight kept kept popping up in my in my haiku and in and indeed i at that time, and still to this day, often write haiku, or haiku come to me in the middle of the night, and I, I wake up and and you know there's just some there's some kind of restlessness in me that uh, manifests as a haiku uh, sometimes.
0: So you the poem wakes you up and you write sometimes, it and that.
1: sometimes you know there are cases where um, I. There's a couple of possibilities. One is that uh, I, I actually the, the the haiku comes to me as I'm dreaming, or as part of a dream, uh, and then there's others that I write as the result of having had a dream. That they become poem haiku about dreams, and in fact, I have a few of those uh, that are brought today just to share. So you can, and you know, they don't make any kind of super logical sense in a way, some of them, but um uh, i think n- i think now my my haiku have i think I've sort of gotten through the covid era you know as a as a a weather for the poems, and now they're now that I think a lot of them are um hopefully lighter in tone, maybe even some of them are kind of funny, i hope and um and and but then again, most of them do come out of you know haiku i think is a is an observational form it largely springs at least for me uh from things i see or or do in real life in, yeah, in or, everyday life yeah or
0: zooming into a moment and yeah. really really seeing something and
1: and and seeing the, um, the writing the haiku often i think reveals the this surprising aspect of ordinary life uh, everyday life that we don't remark upon except um, in in the form of a of a haiku or a photograph it's 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 that which reveals that strangeness and I, you know i i also think that almost all of my haiku have a kind of a surprise element and there's always some it's not just observing something it's also observing something, and then making something of it. You know, finding some new place to go from that observation. So it's there's often you know it's a feature of haiku that there is a turn, and the turn almost almost always happens near the end of the second line, and that it's almost the, it's almost always the case that in the it's the third line in which things kind of flip or turn and you, you, you find yourself in some place that you didn't expect from the first two lines a yeah. lot at the time.
0: Making the moment larger. Yeah, exactly. From what you're saying, it sounds to me like living in the present. As everybody says, live in the present. <laughs> then that really helps writing haiku because you see. If you live in the present, you really see. Would you agree with that?
1: I think that's right and I think you there is some there are habits involved as well I mean I think if you get into the habit of of paying attention to what's happening in front of you then the haiku come more more easily and frequently you know and and I think once you've established the, the habit of, of observation and close, closely observing things, um, nature. You know, a lot of the a lot of haiku, and, and certainly true of mine, um, traditionally relate to the seasons, the changing of the seasons, passage of time, and so my my haiku, uh, very typically, are highly observant of uh, weather. Mm-hmm. changes in the weather uh, when when and especially when the, when one season is change is turning into the next as it is currently uh, i find myself more and more observant uh it's in the it's in the midst of summer where everything seems to kind of freeze for a while you know summer just sort of stays itself for a good long while that's my that's the part of the year that i'm i'm least looking at at the weather and the seasons it's it's when it's when fall turns to winter or winter to spring those are the most those are the times when i feel the most compelled to write about the moment uh, in that sense and in those other times i find myself the 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 poems begin to look inward more um you know, there's this uh, tradition of the senru, which uh, typically is a more personal poem, often uh, more political. It may have um, uh, it's it's looking at an inner landscape, not not the Kira outer. Nature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's another kind of. I don't really use the term senru, but I, I that's another kind of haiku that I write, and it's often at times when um, the 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 weather and the, and the seasons are less dynamic than they sometimes are.
0: One thing that I really enjoyed about both your books is how one plus one equals a lot more than two. How did you, how did you manage to do that and how did you marry the haiku with the photograph?
1: Well, you know, we would have an easier time talking about this if we were on television True. or in some visual medium uh, than talking about it on the radio. But basically, uh, you know, if, if, the, if our listeners could see the books, I could show them that sometimes the haiku um, that I would write to the photograph were uh, pretty directly related you know, you could see there's a there is a a haiku of um, of a rose, and um, in the in my first book, and um, <clears throat> and it's a very vivid rose, and you only see half of it. You only see half of it, kind of peeking into the frame, and um, and the haiku goes: I was admiring roses, and thought of Mama kneeling in the yard, and that's a very direct, I mean, I saw the rose, I thought of her, and there she is in her mode of taking care of the roses. You know, that's that's a one-to-one relation. But that's probably a minority of the kinds of haiku that I had in the book. It was uh, uh, more often the relation of the of the inf, of the visual image and the haiku would be more in, indirect, and uh, there would be some uh, very loose association. Sometimes it would be somewhat clear; other times it wouldn't. It, but I didn't worry about that because I thought you know there's something there's an emotional consonants that can happen between words and images um that doesn't have to be uh literal and so i'd say probably more than half of them are uh, are sort of fit that description um, shall i read some haiku
0: i was about to ask you to
1: i uh, when you asked me to come on the show and i appreciate that invitation by the way I, I went back and I and, and I thought, well, what am I going to read? And and I I just went back and I looked at some haiku just from the last two months, and uh, and they they give you a feeling of um, you know I, I mentioned uh, direct observation, and these are just here are some that um, came directly just from things that I observed. Um, Sitting in, in my house, looking out the window. Uh, or, or just looking at just anything that happens. It could be <clears throat> in any room of the house. Duotone tone of rain. A sizzle in the treetops. Thumping on the ground. And this you know, if, if, if you have... Um, if you listen carefully if you're sitting just quietly you can hear that there are these two distinct sounds there's the very high pitched sound that the rain makes as it's touching the leaves when it first came at the top of the trees and then there are these raindrops that Mm -hmm. kind of hit the hit the ground Mm -hmm. and so that that's that comes out of that
0: um i I love that sound uh, yeah the, the word sizzle on the rooftops also the combination yeah. of of I guess water and what you would expect oil to make.
1: Well, that's it's two different sounds, and yeah. I, and I just and I was sitting in in my house and it was raining and I, and I realized that there were those two distinct sounds coming together, so it's a duotone. Um, this one I wrote just a couple of days ago in my kitchen, Peel the outer leaves of an old yellowed cabbage. Find it young inside. <laughs> and, you know, I had somebody respond to this on Facebook, and he said, I'm the cabbage. And I said, me too. <laughs> Here's another one. Uh, again, and this is a, also a kitchen haiku. Uh, Black plum so juicy and sweet except near the pit. Your hard, bitter heart. <laughs> and uh, I and that came from eating a I, I ate a black plum and and it has that and if you if you've ever noticed when you eat a plum, it, the the flesh that's near the pit has a bitterness to it, so that just literally was a that was a, both of those one the previous one is a hearing thing, and the the second one was a taste thing, and. Um, there's, that's just. Those are a couple of examples. Um, I thought I'd give you a, a few uh, ones related to this season, and these all all relate to autumn leaves in one way or another. Uh, I follow the leaves, and the rain, and the sky. All of us falling down. The sycamore leaves. Burnt at the edges, keep on clinging to the bones. If you if you look at sycamore trees, you notice they have this very white
0: bark, like skeletons. Yes, and it's
1: like yeah. And And so the the idea of bones, Uh, the ginkgo trees, everybody in Lexington is fascinated by. The fact that the ginkgo trees, um, which they they turn this beautiful bright yellow, and then they, all the leaves kind of tend to fall at once over like a weekend. Uh, so this is about that the ginkgo trees don' silky saffron robes, ready for the big burlesque. <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> burlesque, right? And um, and then it seems the leaves fall faster. Father every year, taking me with them. I've got a few kind of funny ones here. Um, I think they're funny. Barbara Streisand's first fur coat, sold as sable, was actually skunk. (laughs) And that's a detail from her recently uh, released memoir. Choose to be happy, you said, I said, Don't tell me what to do, asshole. <laughs> I sneak out at night in boxers to hail the moon feed the feral cat.
0: Wow. I can I can read that at least three different ways.
1: That's, that's <laughs> that, um, and that's all true. These are the, most of these are based on things that are are more or less very close to reality. This one's kind of a, a funny one. I think uh, people, you know, the idea of the trigger warning. You know, a lot of people will post a trigger warning. What you're about to read is has some terrible thing that may scar your psyche, right? So be be warned in advance. So mine goes a trigger warning you are reading poetry, it'll be okay. (laughs) Uh, My socks are all twins, separated at birth in search of each other. And finally, female cicadas must think, here I am, lover, now shut the hell up. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm. I'm. Um, I have a couple here that a lot of old myths get get turned into. Uh, into there's one of mine that is based on uh, the the tale of or- Orpheus. These are all ancient. I think Orpheus goes something like. Um, um, Warned not to look back at my love in hell, I looked. And lost her again. Mm. Then this one. is; These two are very recent. Uh, it says. Uh, this is the story of Icarus. I was in free fall. Pulled up at the last second. My wings. Dripping wax. And finally. This is the, about the story of Pandora. I opened the box. And it all comes spilling out. All but that one thing.
0: Before I ask you about how you're going to put that in another book and when should we expect that, I want to say that the word the word duotone duotone would make a great book title. Because, okay. Yeah, that's what I heard. <laughs> well,
1: <laughs> I am you know I am in the early stages now of um, trying to put together a new uh, haiku collection. I actually have two I have two um, manuscripts now I've got one of uh full length poems and um and I'm tr- trying to find a publisher for for that and then um and then in the meantime I am also working on a collection of of haiku and I think you know the the trick for me is I mean on the one hand you want to <sighs> your you're your by now famous at least in my mind idea of of um bonded pairs and and the ferrets and <laughs> which uh, for listeners if you haven't heard katerina's uh, idea of uh, bonded pairs it came to her as a result of observing uh pairs of ferrets who are very apparently they they, they pair up and and they're sort of inseparable and uh, she applies that idea to uh to poems, and, and that becomes useful as you are trying to organize a, a or sequence a, a, a book of poems. And, uh, you know, the...
0: Uh, so you're using bonded pairs. That's so fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm using bonded... Although in my case, you know, it's not like bonded. It's more like bonded, uh, I don't know, orgies or something, because there's <laughs> there's so many of them. That's that's a, that's a problem is how do you select them in a way that... Uh, it has some coherence as a sequence, but also some variety. You know, you don't want them to be all about the same thing. And so um, th- those, are, those are the ideas. And, then, you know, I kind of, I'm currently not thinking of doing um, pairing with images um, for this particular group. I mean, I could, but it's, it's ex- more, a lot more, it's a more expensive process to publish a book with, especially if you're doing color photography, it's very expensive. Uh, I
0: have to say that I love the black and white uh, feel of midnight.
1: Oh Well, I thank you for that. And, and that, was, that was both partly because uh, I, I wanted, you know, midnight, black, everything's dark. It made sense to do black and white photography. But it was also the case that it was, it was much, much more economical to publish that book than it would have been had the photographs been in color. So there we are, and uh, I I enjoy uh, haiku as a form. It, it's a it's a kind of uh, daily. It's sort of like doing the crossword puzzle every day for me. I mean, I on the, in in the sense that you know the haiku is, and I do write. Uh, I follow the traditional form of five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second line, five syllables in the third. And um, for me, you know, famously Robert Frost said, you know, uh, writing free verse is like playing tennis without a net. And I, I, to me, it doesn't make sense to write something that you call a haiku, and then it, but it's it doesn't follow the, the the form. So I'm one of those uh, sort of haiku Nazis who think that yeah, yeah. purist. Yeah, purist. I'm a purist when it yeah. comes to right. So I do I do enjoy. Um, and sometimes, occasionally, it's, it's in that need to satisfy the form that I make a discovery that I wouldn't have found otherwise. Sometimes it's a repeated word. Sometimes it's, uh, well, I'll give an example. I just saw it here. There's a, there's a, a final category, and there, these are meditations on, on death. Um, I'll just read, I think there's a couple here. Mist on the window as if from the breath of some great beast looking in. Uh, will there be music as we float up from our beds? Music in the air. And then finally, how the dust settles in this old house, how it clings. I am the dust. I. I. And of course, that last "I," uh, I wouldn't have come. I wouldn't have gotten that had it not been for the need to have five syllables in that final line. And but I think it works in a in a weird way. You know? It has a kind of so, Edgar Allan yeah. Poe kind of <laughs> feel.
0: <laughs> and you also write non haiku poems,
1: right? Right. Well,
0: how do they? How do you? Like weave in and out of form.
1: That, you know, they they happen on very different uh, tracks. I mean, I guess you could say parallel tracks, but maybe not. I mean, haiku seem to come to me, uh, or they just happen in a in a way that is maybe not quite unconnected to my other kinds of poetry, but that it's it, certainly it's its own its own room in my brain you know and um, the other other poems um, you know come to me in in various other ways and they a lot of them are much more uh, directly related to my life and my history and um, I would say they, they are less they're my longer poems tend to be more narrative and less lyrical I think
0: did you bring several? Yeah, me? yeah. I would love to hear. I've got some here.
1: I thought I'd I would read um, a few here. One is called. This first one is called Ice Tea. I think I'm like a lot of people, a lot of poets, in that a lot of my poems are kind of down. You know, they're sort of downers. They they tend there tends to be kind of a, a melancholy. Um, and um, in this one, I'm not saying this isn't you know, melancholy, but it's 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 lighter in tone. Ice tea. It's not just for summer, the long tall glass perspiring, ice cubes clinking against the spoon, a half moon of lemon straddling the rim. It's for spring and fall and winter too. Ice in the glass like snow flurries in December. The sound of pouring, rhyming with that of an April shower. And the tea leaves like foliage in October. Maple, walnut, ash, swirling.
0: Very visual and detailed.
1: (laughs) Um, I think this is, uh, this is a, uh, there are a couple of poems here. And I suppose they are... I'll read this one called "Bright Leaf." Uh, Manny Grimaldi is getting ready to publish it in uh, uh, his magazine called Yearling, and he he was very kind to uh, nominate this poem for a, a Pushcart Prize uh, this year. And it, the title is "Bright Leaf." I remember watching you lean on a fence post at sunset, lighting up the slow, deep drag you hold in your lungs as long as you can, swelling your chest with tar and ashes and the greatest solace you've ever known. You grow the stuff, a fourth-generation master of curing the green tobacco leaves of July and August to the color of the burlap sacks we haul them off to market in, come September. Sometimes you hold a golden leaf to your nose, inhale its dark bouquet like a snifter of brandy. You don't allow the word cancer to be spoken in our house, when by chance I'm the one to tell you that your best friend died of it. I see you cry for the first time and the last. At the fence, you know I'm watching from the porch. No, I'll run from this farm as soon as I can. No, there'll be no fifth generation. No, it ends with you. I watch you fire up another Marlboro and pull on it hard, its tip flaring in the fading light. And your face becomes your finest bright leaf, cured half a century by the smoke from two packs a day veined tanned supple creased a parchment treasure map that in my mind i fold and refold until it's soft as linen ready to memorize and burn
0: i really enjoy how you were able to sustain the story and it could have stopped in so many places. You know, okay, that's a poem, that's a poem, that's a poem. <laughs> but you continued and continued yeah, and continued, well, surprised.
1: And then I I have, um, uh, there's a poem here that I, I had some hesitation about writing, putting into words. It's one of those, you know, that people say, you know, you should, if you have a poem that you really have been avoiding writing, uh, you should write it. And this is one of those. And it's called Basilisk. After he broke my little finger, snapping the bone to make me let go of my phone, it swelled by half and the ligament pulled tight, leaving the finger curved inward like a claw. The middle knuckle froze, useless for typing. Gloves were out of the question. No health insurance then, so I didn't get it fixed. For years, I kept my left hand balled into a fist, hoping that no one would notice the claw. The knuckle turned to stone. When anyone did, I'd tell a story about being jumped by a stranger on a street one night. No one questioned it. I even begged that I had put up a struggle and held on to the phone, as if I'd been brave. This week, I tell the story to the therapist working on my finger, stretching the ligament, prying the claw open. The knuckle is still frozen, but she's determined. She dips my hand in hot paraffin, pulls off the glove of wax, and stretches my finger, presses it down with heavy weights. It hurts almost as much as it did that night. But she holds my hand as she does it, the first time anyone has held it since he did. I want to tell her that he wasn't a stranger, that it wasn't on the street that he'd held my hand other times, too, and it never hurt except that once. I want to tell her who he was, but that would be telling her who I was then. Instead, I ask if she's ever heard of a basilisk, an ancient monster that looks at its prey and turns it into stone. A basilisk looked at my hand, I tell her, and see what happened she says at least it was just a finger
0: what <laughs> <a>, what storytelling <laughs>
1: well i uh, what uh, ending Why? sadly true all true uh but anyhow i i appreciate that maybe i'll read one more and 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 something that's a little bit less uh <laughs> less um problematic from a...
0: Uh, Don't spare us anything.
1: Uh, maybe one more sort of downer, but it, it has, it, you know, I, I preface this poem by telling people, you know, this is this is about a kind of relationship that you should never have. And it's called Blood Moon. You kick him out, but not all the way out. Always insisting you want peace and quiet. But in the wolf den, in your mind, it's the last thing you want, or ever wanted. What's it all been for, if not the way the hair in the back of your neck stands up when he looks at you? Sometimes you want him gone forever with his howling, lying, beautiful mouth, and you don't care how empty you are without him. But then things slow way down, and get way too quiet. And instead of thinking about him every second of your life, you start thinking about yourself. And there's a reason why you stay away from mirrors. It's just easier in the end to have him there with his lip curled and his fist bald, because then you know who you are. Plus, there's a blood moon tonight and what a waste it would be without him looming in your bedroom door, claws out and hackles up, and in his yellow eyes, that same old
0: look. I really like that. And the hearing the last two poems, I saw clearly... The Bonded pair! <laughs> the, the image of the claw. Yeah. So if I were putting a book together, I would put... More poems that have the word "claw," <laughs> yeah. Well, or the sickle moon, or something that yeah. has to do with that.
1: Yeah, well, they're they're certainly they come from a similar similar place. Um, I think I'll, I'll end with um, a, a little a, a little um, haiku uh, sequence. I've mentioned uh, Linda Bryant. Who, by the way, you know, is she's recovering from a stroke, and um, we miss her very much on our radio show. She told me the other day she is recovering, but she told me she thinks, you know, it'll be perhaps a year before she can come back onto the show. Jay and I certainly hope to keep it going until then. But uh, I I have spent a lot of time at her and Coleman's house in. Uh, um, Owsley Fork just outside of Berea and uh, they, their house, which used to be owned by Bell Hooks, by the way, uh, overlooks the, the, uh, Owsley Fork sanctu- the Owsley Fork Reservoir, which uh, supplies, it's a lake which uh, supplies water for the city of Berea and it is just stunningly beautiful. There's a mountain across the way called Big Hill. And uh, they're in the foothills of Appalachia there, and it's it's just a stunning place. And so, um, these are all uh, haiku uh, that I've strung together. They were all written there. In, in there, she has a cabin. There, they have a writing uh, a writer sanctuary, and there's a beautiful cabin which I've stayed in on several occasions. And these are all things that I've observed and seen with my own eyes, so to speak. At, uh, at Owsley Fork. And it's called Seven Views of Owsley Fork. One, fog rolls down big hill. A boat on the reservoir vanishes in mist. Two, hepatica, wild orchids, trout lilies, this day, all ephemeral Three, the wind in the trees makes the sound of a rainstorm, a rushing river. Four, three buzzards circle high in the sky, nonchalant, taking in the sights. Five, afternoon shadows stretch across the lake toward me. Their arms beckoning. Six. The sun sinks behind the ridge. Oh, let me lie down in all that stardust. Seven. In the bright morning, a flock of geese flies over, honking, coming home.
0: From Stardust to Coming Home, <laughs> yeah. I, I love them. Yeah,
1: well, I'm very indebted to Linda. Linda, and if you know, brilliant, unwitting, unwittingly, yeah. unwittingly gave me my haiku career. You wow. know, because she's the one who really got me started on it. And so I, I feel, I feel a great connection to her, both as a poet and as a person. And uh, she and I are old friends, by the way. We we knew each other when uh, we both were staff writers at the Tennessee and the newspaper in Nashville many years ago.
0: So wonderful to see your friendship and so wonderful to see you, Linda, and Jay and the wonderful service that you do at the Kentucky Writers Roundtable. Tell our listeners about
1: that. Okay, well, Kentucky Writers Roundtable is a show that we started a couple of years ago at uh, Radio Lex, and uh, you, you, you can um, get Radio Lex in Lexington on your, uh, on your car radio or radio if you have it in the house, but I usually just go to their website, which is radiolex.us, and you can, you can stream the, um, the shows there live. And then we also have a a podcast version that we make available as part of an archive. You can go to our website, uh, I really should call it our Facebook page, our Facebook page, which is Kentucky Writers Roundtable, and pinned at the top of that page, you'll find an archive of all the shows. By now, I think we've done... I don't know. Something like maybe three dozen or so, maybe four dozen uh, interviews, and we, you know, we've had we've had a lot of uh, well-known writers, people like Ada Limon and um, uh, Silas House, Crystal Wilkinson, uh, Katerina Storkova. Uh We've had uh, uh, people who've who are much more closer to the beginning you know, stages of their careers then the end or, or even the mid-stage. The mid um, and um, all along, you know, we've had really great conversations. Uh, I would say the great uh, preponderance of the interviews have been with poets, because we're all uh, Jay and Linda and I are poets, and and I guess we sort of maybe think in the back of our minds, you know, if, if we don't do it, who else is going to give these poets? Who uh, do you want to talk to? You <laughs> want to talk to other poets too? That's so. right. So, but we have had novelists, we've had nonfiction writers, we've had uh, playwrights. Uh, we, on, at Halloween, we had Dan Clevstat, who is a, a horror writer who's written a, a novel uh, about a vampire. We've had. Um, um, uh, recently, uh, uh, a woman who uh, has written a book about Kentucky in the War of eighteen twelve that's uh, Doran Settle, uh, Doris Settles. Um, we, uh, we had uh, Morris Manning and his um, sort of uh, he had a, his producer and one of his players, uh, a mandolin player. Um, who came in, and th- they are known as the Possum Posse. And uh, Morris has a um, a you know it's the the Possum podcast that he does, and and he plays the banjo and and reads poems and tells tall tales. And and we did as we did we're going to have him back uh, on the show, I think, very soon to talk about his new book, Snake Doctor, which I think just came out uh, very shortly. We had you on. We we try to be, when we have the opportunity to be sort of timely, we try to grasp that. We had you on and Janet Holloway to talk about the Kentucky um, Book Festival, which you did a very nice job of talking about. And, you know, um, we don't uh, we don't pretend to to have a wide reach but we we, we think that uh, for the people who do you know catch the show uh, we provide some depth in our interviews we try to think of good questions to ask we always read the books and we we um, and and by the way for me personally that's one of the the great benefits of the show it, for me is is the fact that You know, it it forces me to seek out and read books by Kentucky writers. So I think I probably have read more locally written books, uh, people from Kentucky, than, you know, I probably have ever, ever done in my life. And I think that's a great thing. Um, And um, it's been a wonderful opportunity to get to know the writers who are right here in, in, in Kentucky. And we have had, by the way, writers from other parts of the state, not just Lexington. We've had people from, from uh, Louisville and Elizabethtown and Fort Knox and people from eastern Kentucky. So we've done, we've done well uh, in terms, and also northern Kentucky. We've had people who basically live in the more or less the Cincinnati area, people around Newport, places like that. So uh, we have tried to cover, you know, a lot of bases and, and we've had uh, a number of writers of color, people like Frank Walker and Damaris Hill and, and of course, Crystal and, we, and, and uh, Ron Davis uh, recently. So I think we, you know, we're, we're trying to do all the things that we, you know, we need to do in terms of diversity, both um, uh, ethnic, racial and geographic, and And age too, we've we've had some quite young writers and and, of course, uh, older ones. We had Richard Taylor. He might be the senior writer that we've had on the show. He was a lovely interview, lovely man, as you know. You published him. so uh, we we're very uh, we feel like we've found a little niche. Uh, now, of course, you're our competition. You, you, you talk to many of the same people. And so you, you, uh, you, it's wonderful that we have two shows that have a similar kind of focus in a way.
0: I would not think of your show as a competition. Like, <laughs> I would think like a sister show. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a family. Yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. Well, I appreciate I'm glad you look at it. That's right. it's, I mean, and we always love having you on the show. We, 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 uh, we want to have you back very soon, in fact.
0: Yeah, well, I love talking to every one of you and reading every one of you, too. Oh, thank you. um, I have one last question, and that is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing, and that is, if there is one thing you want your students to remember and to take away from your class or your workshop, what is it?
1: Well, I think... um from uh, the I have taught at the uh, Carnegie Center. I'll, I've, I've taught three haiku classes there, and I guess I I think that um, I've already sort of said it, which is on this interview. I think that it's it's probably not enough to simply uh, make an observation. It's it's that you you have to do something with that observation. You have to make something of it. Otherwise, it's 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 just a it's just a snapshot. And I think, I think there's something about the form of the haiku that is, that is, is it's hard to explain, but basically a haiku is often uh, trying to capture both um, a specific moment in time and something that's eternal, something that is both small and huge at the same time. Like the poem, like the haiku about the cabbage, you know, is an example. I mean, it's just, it's just this homely thing. In that, but I think that some people got from it, you know, uh, there's something perhaps large that's being said about uh, being old and wrinkled and yellow on the outside and young on the inside. So uh, I, think, I think that's probably the main thing.
0: Thank you so much, Kevin. Really appreciate you coming and talking to me today.
1: Thank you for having me.